0: I think the confusion on the web has been straightened out. So anybody who wants to go back and pick up audios can. You just go to the church website to watch and listen, and (laughs) and you can. Mary Jane, I'd say it especially for you. (laughs) I think people began to wonder in the first couple of classes whether we'd ever get to Milton, Um, because it was supposed to be a class on Milton and Dante. I spent. Two weeks. And I'm actually not sorry. I mean, there's so much of background that goes to theological questions, and they were very serious for both Dante. Well, Dante hadn't lived then, but he took those same questions seriously. Um, both men love Christ completely, completely. Um, but a lot of things are happening in the Reformation concerning dogmas, you know, the essential truths of them. So and we've inherited them. They're a part of our world, and I wanted to—I wanted everybody to have a better idea because so many of us don't, you know, know what's going on. So, you might go back and listen. It's important to have that background, I think, behind us, particularly with Milton, because he, he comes out of it directly. He's immediately involved in all of it. <coughs> okay. Can you? Um, can you? Do you have George Herbert? So we can start with Herbert. I'm just going to read a, a couple of his poems and point out something that's <laughs> that I immediately loved when I first read Herbert. When I first read him, I was very much taken by him. He, if you look at his poems and the forms of them, the forms vary all the time. I mean, he's doing strange things with forms. And um, I'm not going to do heaven. If you'll turn to heaven. Doc, take the first few lines. With me. Can you get, do you have heaven there? Herbert,
1: Sorry? yes, shif, shif, shif,
0: help me, would you? I'm going to, I'm going to have just for people to see. Okay. I'll read, the, or no, you read the first, third, and first, third and fourth, and I'll come in as the echo. You read first, the, the long lines. Okay. Go.
2: Start. O oh, will show me those delights on high. I. Thou echo, thou art mortal. No. Werest thou not born among the trees and leaves? Please
0: just stop. I mean, you can see. I mean, there's he he he's he's um, so innovative as a poet. He he and you can see. Look at the very first one. The first one is the altar. I mean, you can't miss what he's doing with the form. I think, if I remember correctly, it's the first poem in his collection because he looked at his poetry. As an offering to Christ, so his poetry was a way of sharing in Christ's sacrifice. As a poet, he was giving his life to Him. Is that clear? So he has. I think there are three bodies of poetry. It divides down into the porch. By the way, this is this is the language of the church. Always was Catholic, all the way to our time. People aren't. I don't think people are used to hearing this language, but it. It's always been fundamental to the um, Christian tradition. The first collection is the porch. The second is the church militant. That is, it's us in our fight against evil in our world. And the final one is the church. I can't, church saved? I can't remember the third. But it's the porch, the church militant, and whatever the final end was, the the saved, the the ends of things. Hmm? Yes, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Got a spin in the back. Good for you. You know that language.
1: Yeah? I've
0: read one. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I mean, the altar, as I remember, it's been forever since I've read him, but it it, it's, it stands at the beginning of his work as an indication that his poetry is um, a participation in the sacrifice of Christ. It's an offering of himself to Christ. But I wanted to read a couple of other poems, so let's um, um, Find Love Three, I think it's on your first page. (coughs) George Herbert was an Anglican priest, he he was a contemporary, he he lived just after Shakespeare, he was a contemporary with Dunn and some other poets who were called at that time the metaphysical poets. And the reason they were given that title is that all of them um, were a product of the Christian Catholic world. So they had a a fundamental grasp of metaphysics. This is so important and people don't give it the importance it should have. They had a, a, a metaphysical grasp of the world that we've lost today. We are more empirically oriented people. We live more in our senses with very little sense of a metaphysics. That isn't true of those men. It's, that's particularly true of Dunn. Of all the metaphysical poets, he's the most, I think, the most metaphysical. But it, you can't read their poetry without being aware that there's a metaphysical, a, a, um, an immaterial order that's a part of our own order that very often we don't see. But they bring it into their poetry to show us there's this non-physical, this immaterial world, active in some way. It's a dynamic that plays out in our world, and their poetry shows it. So, so from one respect, it's, it seems like a really unusual poetry, <coughs> particularly when you compare it to poetry of our time, because we're located so much in our bodies, in our senses. At that time it wasn't, it was a natural product of the Christian Middle Ages. Um, and it's interesting, it comes to light right at that moment when metaphysics is disappearing from our world. With, with Descartes and Kant, metaphysics and science, metaphysics drops away it's it's one of the, po- I believe it's one of the serious poverty of our world. So he was an Anglican um, priest um, and um, a, de- a devoted poet, so <clears throat> George Herbert, Love. Love made me welcome that my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in drew near to me sweetly questioning if i lacked anything a guest i answered worthy to be here love said you shall be he i the unkind ungrateful ah my dear i cannot look on thee love took my hand and smiling did reply who made the eyes but i truth lord but i have marred them let my shame go where it doth deserve and know you not says Love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says Love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Um, I'm going to point something out and then I'll finish with death, but I'd like you to see something here. Take a look at Hey Sue. It's on the back, the back, bottom of the back page. You all see it? Death is at the top. Death is the first moment. Yesu is... Um, I'm not going to read it, but... if you Well, no, I'll read it, but I'm going to do this really quickly. It's called Yesu. Yesu is my heart. His sacred name is deeply carved there. But the other week a great affliction broke the little frame, even all the pieces, which I went to seek. And first I found the corner where was Ye or I, after where, ease and next, where you was grave. When I had got these parcels instantly I sat me down to spell them and perceived that to my broken heart he was an and to my whole chase. So what, he, what you see in this poem, and I'll give you another example of it in a second, is Herbert believed, per, to his core, to his bones, he believed unlike moderns who believe that words are arbitrary, they're signs they're, they're references to something. He believed that every word um, was, by analogy, linked to the word. You've been hearing that from me for two and a half years. Um, that words are not just arbitrary, made-up things. For a realist, they have an analogical tie to the word. So they point to things, they signify things, but they also have a meaning in themselves. And if you read Herbert, enough of them you'll... F- you'll see that he had that same sense. So when he, when he looks at the word Jesus, you can say that's just the name of Christ, but he looks at the word and what he finds is there are elements in it that break down, that have an intelligibility, a meaning in themselves. And so he found in it, I ease you, it, it, it may seem like a game, it's not a game to him. He, he's showing that there are these hidden meanings, these hidden elements, that. Come together to form a meaning in the word itself. So it's not just signifying something else, it has a meaning in itself. Take a look on the next page at the uh, Mary anagram. <coughs> Same thing. Who is Anna? Everybody knows, yes. Who is Anna? <coughs>
2: Mary's
0: mother. Yeah, right. Mary's mom, her mother, Anna. So, Anna gave birth to Mary, and Anagram, what does Anagram mean? Gram means word, right? So, Anna gave birth to Mary, who gave birth to Christ, and contained in the word Mary is the word army. Um, so you can see what he's doing. I mean, he's, he's, it looks like he's playing word games. For, for Herbert, he's not. He's, he's making us aware that there, there are these secret intelligibilities, these secret meanings to words. So, Mary, Anna, Army, Graham, <laughs> it's like a womb, that little parenthesis. How well her name an army doth present, in whom the Lord of hosts did pitch his tent. Okay, last poem, Death. I love this poem because I think it's it's important for us to hear it because so many of us despair when somebody dies or when we face our own death. If our faith is deep and genuine I, I think we, we, I'm saying that if, because I don't believe it's always what it should be for us. If it's what it should be we should look on death happily, gladly because we know we're passing to God. We are leaving a veil of tears, the horrors of our world, the horrors that so often reduce us to tears and sorrow and anger. And And Herbert's reminding us of that fact here in this poem, that death is not something to fear, shouldn't be afraid of it. If our faith is what it should be, we should look on it favorably even more so because Christ went to his death for us yeah he, um, he went willingly and, and worse he, he went to his death knowing that it was going to be a tortured death um, death death, that was once an uncouth hideous thing nothing but bones the sad effect of sadder groans thy mouth was open but thou couldst not sing for we considered thee as at some six or ten years hence, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks. That's before Christ came, for the pagan world. If you know anything about the pagan world, you know that it's basically tragic. I mean, the, the, de- the end of life is a dark thing. For remember, in the Iliad, Achilles looked at the next life as these gibbering shades. There's there's no meaning in the next life. They're all gibbering. They make, they're incoherent. They're shades. There's no life in them. Um, everything that was of significance ended here. So, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was opened, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as it's some six or ten years hence. After the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust, and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust, which sheds no tears, but may extort. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for, as a good. For we do now behold thee, gay and glad, as at doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore we can go die asleep and trust half that we have unto an honest, faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. Okay. George Herbert. Next week, and don't, don't ever say I haven't given you <laughs> ample warning. <laughs> I've got to stop Sue. (laughs) I hope you have comebacks for every one of my lines. Um, Next week we'll do Blake, okay? And when you read him, remember he was very much taken with Milton. Um, The whole English world following Milton was living under his influence, under his inspiration, so... Some of the poems are actually addressed to him. They have him in mind. Uh, you'll see that when you when you read Blake, when you read Blake. <coughs> okay. Just a quick review. Are you guys all warm enough? I know it gets cold this year. Are you Lois, are you okay? I've got an extra no, no. you sure?
2: I'm from Minnesota. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> I had
0: John turn the heat up and I'm not I'm not feeling any heat in here at all. Um,
2: <sighs>
0: remember, one of the basic questions that I began with when we started was, um, what difference does it make what our belief is—Islam, um, Judaism, Christianity—and with Christ- within Christianity, there are <coughs> different denominations that have different beliefs. Who cares? What difference does it make? And. Um, I tried outlining just in very general terms the descent from Judaism because that's where that's where our roots are. Christ was a Jew. He was born into the, um, the, um, the Jewish race. There was a special calling. God had called the Jews out um, for a special reason. Christ is born into a Jew, um, Jewish race, and, um, but he gives his life for everybody. Um, much later in history, um, Islam breaks off from Judaism, its roots are in the law. The, the law is fundamental um, to both Judaism and Islam. This is while Christianity is to developing in the Middle Ages, but we've got um, those three basic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Um, they're all, they all have their roots in the law, But what happens with Christ radically changes. You know, we went over this. Christ came to fulfill the law, every iota of it, but in love. And the love that he offers is both human and divine. So we went through that. Um, I just want to make a couple of basic distinctions to those three religions, because they're the the most significant. um, They they make up the largest body of people in the world. Islam even though people who practice Islam can live in different cultures, the, the Quran makes that evident. They, they can live anywhere um, and take their religion with them so they don't have to live in an Islamic country. But at the root of Islam is the belief in a theocracy of a, of a nation of Islam, that Islam will have its own nation. Um, it's under the law and um, generally speaking I think it's safe to say that as a theocracy it takes its um, the source of its law is God as um, um, Allah revealed it to um, Muhammad. and it's interesting to note for those of you who think about these things, you know, we, we talked about the importance of private revelation for the Reformation. Um, Muhammad's vision was a private revelation, absolutely private. Um, and it was on the basis of that that he um, believed that Allah was dictating the truth to him, um, and that that's the origins of Islam. Because the law comes from directly from God. Generally speaking, Muslims don't make the distinction between divine law and natural law that we do, because you know, in the West, given Caesar, given to God, that that we distinguish between the laws. Um, that govern us in the natural order and the laws, the divine laws that um, govern us directly from God the, the, the mosaic laws as we know them. So in Islam it's, it's not uncommon for I mean t- for something like this to happen. If somebody stole something he could have his hand cut off because that what he's doing is violating a law from God. If a woman commits <coughs> adultery she could be stoned. You know, it can get severe because in those instances the, the feeling is that the understanding is that one is violating God's law so there can be a severity to the law um, that, that we don't, that doesn't characterize what we do with the law in the West um, um, Muslims believe from the, from the um, Quran in God's mercy um, what Muhammad received from God makes that clear. So in both Judaism and Islam, there, um, there's this holding to the law, either from Yahweh or Allah, and a mercy in, in both religions. But in neither one of them is there a God who, um, who took on the sins of man in order to redeem him. Um, the Jews believe in the righteousness of the law, that if one follows it, it will make him righteous. Um, it, it will make him capable of being with God, and it was on the, on the basis of that belief that the observances multiplied. Um, when Christ came, he came to answer all of those. You know that he was struggling when the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees would constantly remind him of, a law or of an observance that he was violating. Um, n- neither Judaism or Islam believes in Christ as a God so they don't have an image of a God who is willing to, to, um, to go to his death to atone And The Jews don't believe that that's necessary. They believe that their righteousness under the law would do it. After Christ came and died, Paul answered all of that. If you've read Paul's letters you know that righteousness is never enough, that there's something concealed under righteousness that the the Jews didn't see. Otherwise, there would have been no need for Christ. Um, That the depths of man's sin was far greater um, than men knew, and Christ came to show that. Um, So the law gets carried down in Judaism and Islam and in Christianity, but in Christianity it's fulfilled... Um, in Christ um, by his love and his mercy. So in Christianity um, we, we've inherited this tension we've been asked to live according to the law, to take it seriously the law helps us see our sins it's one of its functions we we become aware of how inadequate <coughs> we are because we're under the law but not to live by it um, we're asked to live by faith And faith, according to Christianity, is a supernatural gift that relates us immediately with God. It it relates us to a divine order. That's what faith is. And I'm saying that emphatically right now. You're probably hearing my voice lift a notch. Because I believe that what we've done in the modern world is taken all the supernatural virtues and um, once again lowered them, reduced them, degraded them in some ways. We say... I hope I get a red wagon for Christmas or um, I have faith in this, but very often when we say I have faith it's a little bit like saying I, um, I, I go online and um, find out what date it is. I mean it becomes a sort of factual thing. It's lost its supernatural, it's lost something of its supernatural quality. That's true for all of the virtues. When we say I love you, you know, we, I think we mean it when you say I hope I get something or um, I have faith in you those are very very different things from supernatural virtues for those virtues to be really they have to immediately relate us to a supernatural order Paul says that by the way and I can't remember which one of his epistles but one of them he's talking about hope and he says um, um, if hope beholdeth follow these are, if hope Behold, it. if hope beholds, if hope beholds, it's not hope. Because what hope has as its end is something not yet seen. That, that clear? I hope I get a, a bike. If you get a bike and that's your object and you can see it, I see that bike in that window. I hope I. hope It's not hope. He's saying, if hope beholdeth, it's not hope. Because the real object of hope is beyond this world, we don't see it yet. We. The first virtue, the, the, the fundamental one, is faith. We have faith in something we don't see. Our faith is that it's real. Because if it weren't real, we'd have nothing to approach. There'd be nothing there. Our faith is that it exists. So when we move toward it, it's there. Yeah? So basic to our relationship with God is faith. Paul makes clear. All the writings Christ makes clear. The most important virtue is love. The start of everything is faith. We're we'll called to love one another. Christ, that's his commandment to us. So every one of those things relates us to a supernatural order. I've said it before. Um, we only really hope when we have no reason for hoping. When things are hopeless, that's when we should hope. Yeah. Because otherwise what we're doing, I mean, Father's homily was going directly to this. Otherwise we want things to be convenient and according to our own will. The virtues always call us beyond ourselves, beyond our wills, what we want. Father was saying if we're not ready to martyr ourselves, you know, we make up all these excuses, oh, he made me do this, or she made me do this. or It's exactly when we're tested, when we find out whether we're living by those supernatural virtues or not. Yes. Mike, is all that clear? So um, the, the supernatural virtues that come into play with Christianity are made possible by Christ. The Jews didn't believe that he was the Messiah, neither did the Muslims. The Muslims disbelieve that Christ was a prophet. They do not believe in the Trinity. And if you don't believe in those, you take away everything that Christ brought to us because he came from the Trinity. There's a Trinity of persons that all of whom are divine. Christ gave up his place beside the Father to take on our nature as a human, to answer a sin we could not answer ourselves. So he brought a supernatural order into the world. Neither the Jews or the Islam, the Muslims, believe that. So there's a whole dimension of mercy, there's a whole metaphysical dimension missing in Judaism and and, uh, Islam that Christianity brings to the world. Um, So, I've, I've said this a number of times, one of the greatest tasks for us as Christians is to constantly reconcile law and love, justice and mercy. Let me repeat that. Law and love, reason, faith, justice, mercy. Those things that are very often contradictory. The greatest task for us as Christians, I believe, is learning to order our loves, because after the fall, our loves are disordered. As Catholics, we do not believe that nature is depraved. That's fundamentally Protestant. The, the, the fundamental tenet of Protestantism in the Reformation is man's depraved. The consequences of the fall were complete, complete. Man existed in a state of depravity, and it was only by virtue of our faith that we could lift ourselves out of it. By what, because of what Christ did. Catholics believe that we are our essence. you can't destroy an essence of God. It's impossible. We weren't ruined, we weren't depraved. We were wounded badly. And I'm trusting everybody will understand the depth of that. I certainly know it in myself. The wound of concupiscence, when I think of, of it myself, just knowing my own sins. It leaves leaves me no doubt of how how devastating, overwhelming sin is in us. We can't answer it by ourselves. It's too great. So it can seem like we're depraved. I don't believe that we're depraved. I don't believe we're depraved. I believe the wound is terrible and deep and and sometimes impossible. I mean, it seems impossible to overcome. Our belief is that it can't. It's interesting that that's what Father was talking about in his homily this morning. So the biggest task for us is to reconcile reason, faith, law, love, justice, mercy. We have to learn to order our loves because there's something way wrong in the way all of us love, and we we can't order them well without Christ's help. That's where we we're, we're coming up to the Reformation. Now, the basic tenets of the Reformation was sola scriptura, sola fidei, scripture alone, faith alone, and it made for different readings of the Eucharist. Those were fundamental battle points for all the Reformation thinkers. And I just want to touch on things that were problematic to all of them. Um, All of them believed that scripture was the infallible authority. Um... Not tradition, even though tradition preceded the writings of Scripture, we all know that, the Jewish tradition was already in place. It continued, but it was radically changed um, in the traditions after Christ, they move forward, and then the scriptures come out of, I mean they are part of what happens. So, and the but the I think to me the, the central problem with scripture alone is that if you look at all the Reformation um, the major thinkers, they often met with each other, Luther and um, um, Calvin met you know, with some of the other Reformation thinkers. They disagreed fundamentally on the meaning of Scripture. Well, if it's Scripture alone and everybody can read Scripture as he pleases, there's a problem because either Christ is unified, there's only one truth, or there's something wrong because if truth begins to contradict each other, then we can't just read Scripture the way we want. That's one of the problems that came out of the Reformation. Um, just to give one really good example, um, all of the men had different understandings of the Eucharist, and some of them thought that there was no basis in Scripture for the Pope. I tried giving what I thought was one of the most compelling things I can see in it, if we're reading attentively, you know. When Christ says to Peter, who do, or to his, to the, who do they say I am, and then they can't answer, and he says, to the disciples, who do you say that I am? They can't answer. And then he turns to Peter and says, Who do you say I'm? And Peter says, You're you're the Christ, the Son and Christ says, Nobody gave that to you. You didn't get it by yourself. That came from the Holy Spirit. He confirms it. That's it, I think I went over this, didn't I? But taking to the auspices. And he says, On this rock I will build my church. And shortly after that he gives him the keys. What he's saying is that Peter is the rock, he will hold the power of the keys. And if you look at the mess we're in, you can understand why such authority was given to man, and confirmed by Christ. That's him. Two things are going to go forward, Peter and the authority of the Holy Spirit. They're, they coincide in that moment. They're going to move forward historically together. So You can, I mean, it seems to me there's good reason for looking at that as the founding of the church. It's confirmed by Christ. So said, nobody, you didn't do that yourself. That was the working of the, so the taking of the auspices, Christ confirms it. Who confirms it? God. So scripture alone is problematic because people come away with different interpretations. What's the truth? If this is God, the truth can't just mean whatever anybody wants it to mean. Um, if truth is real, it has an objective reality quite apart from whatever meaning anybody can bring to it We have we have like the works that we read, we have to test our readings out against the text itself, whatever that text says, because lots of people can make a text mean lots of different things. We all know that we i 've been saying from the beginning we don 't read very well misreading is so um, so much a part of our lives. Sola fidea, faith alone. Um, faith is a supernatural gift from God that relates us immediately to Him. Um, but once again, it's a, it's a, it's a private experience. You know, it's absolutely subjective. We don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to verify when um, sh- um, appearances, are made, you know, appearances of Mary. The church has to bend over backwards to confirm them because the religious imagination can make, can claim to have all sorts of experiences that may be real or not. We don't know. We're in a super, we're we're beyond the verifications of science. We're in another world. So um, faith itself is problematic. It can isolate a person from, uh, from the world. I've given you the example of Hamlet. You know, the way that private, re- I think Shakespeare's got that on his mind. Um, you remember that Hamlet went to Wittenberg, which is where it's, some believe the Reformation started with Luther's theses. Um, the the lower Protestant churches, the um, Calvinist churches, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Baptists—that whole reign i am saying that in distinction to the Anglican and. Um, um, Lutheran, huh? Lutheran. Lutheran, and but I was thinking of the, what's the bishops the, Episcopalians, Episcopal. 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 yeah. yeah. If if you think about it, it's really interesting. The high churches, all the high church, Anglican, Episcopalian, keep the Catholic tradition. They they move it forward. The Eucharist is central to all of them. But they break off from Rome and then different things happen with each of them. And, and Luther had a very different understanding of the Eucharist itself. Um, if you look at, uh, lower may not be the best word, but we think of it as high church, low church. I'm using that non, in a non-pejorative way. The low churches distinguish themselves from the high because they don't believe in the Eucharist. Calvin didn't. Um, They believe in the ministry of the word, so what you get in the lower churches is the absence of ceremony that's still present in the the, the high Anglican or English Catholic or, you know, those denominations. You get a ministry of the word. You have a minister interpreting Bible, scripture, because scripture is the ultimate authority. They cut themselves off. And we talked about this, the, the power to invest priests comes from the congregation itself. That's true of Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, all of those. Because they've cut themselves off from the sacerdotal order. There's only two sacraments now, baptism and the Eucharist. Marriage is no longer a sacrament. Orders, priestly orders, the sacerdotal order is gone. So the apostolic tradition is broken. The priests are um, confirmed by a congregation, and it's faith. Now the reason that's um, not so in the Catholic Church is because the Catholic Church believes that the original authority is in Christ, that it's objectively, objectively there. It doesn't depend on a person's faith, it's there. Your faith will make it real if, you, you know, if, you, if that's your faith, but faith itself can't confer that on people because the faith of people can vary so much. But if somebody in the congregation believes homosexual marriages should be, you know, or women priests, or, I mean, they can believe whatever they want. What's going to determine what happens is a majority rule. And we the churches break down constantly because what they're doing is denying the, the real objective, the, the objective reality of Christ in the church, his authority, his presence in the Eucharist. So those are the, those are, those are some of the fundamental problems that we've inherited from the Reformation that still govern our lives. One of the interesting things that happens in that, in that period that's painful to see, when I mean, you realize it, is that you've got vine beliefs willing to go to war and kill other people in order to impose God's will on another. The Anglicans wanted to impose it on the Presbyterians, the Scotch Presbyterians, Scots Presbyterians wanted to impose it on the Anglicans. They go to battle and kill each other. And we're going to see the same thing happen with Dante. The Guelphs and the Ghibellines, with completely radically different beliefs, are going to go to war and kill each other. We think the church is having problems today. <laughs> the church has never, never been without corruptions. Massive. Actually, I would say in some ways, I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'd say actually in some ways, even, even if we don't see physical deaths I really believe we're killing each other today. You know, Christ talks about being a murderer in our hearts. If we look at the violence going on today... <laughs> I believe that there's this invisible war going on between the sexes. We are on a battlefield, um, and the cost of it is awful daily. My belief, you don't do not have to... You can separate that from my work here, that's, that's personal, but... Those are some of the problems that we inherited. Remember, one of the words that I left you with is this word called theosis. Um, from the... Um, it, was a, um, it was a term used by the Greek church but introduced into the West. It was a part of our inheritance as a Catholic group. Remember, we were all one church, we were all one church until the 11th century. 1054 is when the Orthodox Church broke off, the Eastern Orthodox, and we separated into two worlds. That's 11th century. We were all one church. The sacraments, the Mass, always the same. It was the same from Paul's time. If you read Paul in his letters, you'll, you'll see his, particularly the letter to the Corinthians, the Mass, the importance of the <coughs> Eucharist moving forward. There's the schism then, and then once again in the 15th, 16th centuries with Wycliffe and Luther and the others. But up until the 16th century, there was this belief that, that um, theosis means, theosis means man gradually becoming God, man gradually becoming divine. There was a fundamental belief at the center of our faith, this principle at the center of our faith, sorry, that... God came down and took on human nature, took on man's nature, so that man could become God, so that we would return to him. And if you think about that, you, you, you realize the fundamental importance of that question I kept asking you last time, and I kept using um, Hamlet as an example. Remember, Hamlet begins Who's there? Who's there? I, just that, that two words, who's there? The ghost of his father appears to Hamlet, and Hamlet, does, the, Hamlet the problem he's left, he, he, it's a private experience. He can't turn to anybody, he can't verify it. He has, what he has to do is put on the mousetrap play. But his fundamental question is who's there? Is that a demon? The reason he puts on the test is he's not sure that that's not an evil spirit tempting him. Who's there? So he has to prove that. He puts on the test, and then he acts on the basis of what he sees the king do. At the end, in the channel crossing, he has another private revelation, except this time it's from God. You know, Even there, heaven was ordained. He goes down and opens the packet, and he finds out he's going to go to his death. And who's there? When you look at Peter in this moment, to all appearances, everybody, all the other disciples would have looked at him and thought, why? Why? Why in the hell is Christ giving that man those keys? No? And, and the irony is Christ himself confronted that when he, when he went to Bethlehem and they didn't recognize him as a prophet. And Christ says, what, what, he's not even recognized in his own home. Why? Because we become so familiar with each other that we don't see something else is going on. How, how well does any one of us see an act of faith taking place in a person's life, when to all appearances they're the same person? Who's there? God, what a fundamental problem of our age. For the modern Freudian or Darwinian, who's there? It's this shrunken thing. This question of who's there, um, theosis, do we, do we, are we actually aware that somebody becoming God went to all appearances, they're a human being, because Christ was a human being and God. I mean, it's the fundamental problem of our lives. Do we read well? My, I mean, you know my response to that is, I don't think we do very well at all. Um, and let me put it even more starkly, because i raised this question for When When we take the Eucharist, those, are, those of us who are Catholics, when anybody takes the Eucharist, does he go there believing as an act of faith, here it is again, as an act of faith, that he's actually being transformed into a god. And if he does, what power that's given him over his world. Think about Achilles. When he accepts his death and goes back into the battle, nobody can stop that guy. Does that mean people aren't going to be martyred? No, martyrs are all around us. People are killed. The fact that they're human doesn't mean they're invincible. If they're living out Christ, there's a good chance they will be killed. (laughs) Um, Who's there? When we take the Eucharist, do we do it in faith that we are taking something divine into us and living our life accordingly? Now remember, this is not in the head. This is not somebody reading a scripture so that it's an idea in our heads. Christ is corporeal, the incarnation, enfleshed. The Eucharist is enfleshing him in us. That almost sounds poetic. I'm sorry, <laughs> I was taken by that phrase. That? I believe that you know, we're taking him into us in body. It's not just an idea in our heads. When you take the Eucharist, that like any food or medicine, when we take a medicine, it right it flows through our whole body. I mean, healing takes place that way. When you take Christ into you in the Eucharist, you are taking. We are taking him into our bodies completely not just an idea in our minds. Do we believe that something divine is actually entering us? Do we find a strength in that? Or do we just casually take it for granted? Um, I think I can say safely that for too many of us, faith has become a kind of knowledge, like the knowledge of worldly things, when it's supposed to relate us to a supernatural reality. So is love, so is hope. Okay. So much for brief reviews again. <laughs> Let me stop. Just any questions? That's a brief summary of what we've been doing for two weeks. I want to turn to Milton. But before I do, any I know these are really tough problems, tough they they go to such profound truths. Um, so glad to take a minute if anybody wants to. Yeah.
1: My understanding of the Reformation is it didn't really start over dogma like that. Eventually Happened. It was started over the corruption in the church, the indulgences, and the uh, th- abuses that were going on, and then eventually wound up being fighting over dogma as, as a way of uh, justifying their positions.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm not quite. I I wouldn't disagree with that, Don. I, but I wouldn't. I, I would I would disagree, but in a qualified way. I don't think I don't think what you're
1: they didn't start over an argument on the transition. They the did, stage. they did.
0: Hold on, let me, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the reason what's on my mind. There's such a truth to what you're saying, to, to me I don't think you can sort them out because they're right. so they're so interwoven, but to, but to make that a black-white that they didn't start over dogmas I think is a mistake. If you go back to the early Reformation thinkers, and right now I'm thinking about Wycliffe who was really early, and I, I, I thought I made this clear, I hope I did, that every one of those Reformation thinkers Um, was aware of corruptions in the church because they were vast, they were deep. Wycliffe um, grew up when Rome had been moved to France, what we call the Babylonian captivity. But if you look at Wycliffe's writings himself, he he, um, is horrified by the corruptions of the church. He believes that um, the hierarchy of the church should be done away with, that there should be poor priests. If there's a pope, and he wouldn't even acknowledge that, so you're already in a dogma. For Wycliffe, there could be no legitimate pope unless he was poor, that he lived like Christ and Peter. So he's uh, he's his response is to the corruption, and he wants to see the church cleaned up and take on a poverty to make itself authentic. So in that sense, you can say it's not over dogmatic. But you can't separate what he says from dogmas because it goes directly to the hierarchy of the church, the Pope itself, and priests, he wanted to do away with the monasteries and the orders, and he fundamentally changed the Eucharist. He said, Christ is not present there. He's locally in heaven. So at the center of his thinking, and he, he's in the, four, he's, what, 1320, somewhere in there, I think. I can't remember his dates. Um, he's, he's arguing against the Eucharist. So the, the dogmas are fundamental to his beliefs, although you can't separate it from his awareness and his criticism of the church because of its corruptions.
1: And so what was going on was the Avignon papacy moved and uh, then you had the multiple popes. Right. So I think he was living in those times.
0: He was before that. The, the schism with the popes, the multiple popes comes just after that. Um, but he is alive in the Babylonian, when the papacy moves to France. Um, and he's aware of everything ornate and luxurious and corrupt about that. But to separate, to say that the dogmas come later is just not true. You, you can't separate them in his way of looking at it. And Luther picks up the same sensitivity. The peasant revolt has happened because the peasants are aware of the corruptions and the association between the political hierarchy, the king and the aristocracy and the church gives them more reason for their revolts. To turn against the king, because at that time, the, the king and church, the state and church could almost not be separated, so. So it's true, I mean, there, there are these political motives behind everything that's going on, right, but...
1: The rise of nation states and yeah. you know, ideas of democracy and things like that.
0: Printing is underway, people yeah. are, yeah. It, so there's uh, a lot going on. Yes, yes. Yeah, and a lot is an understatement, I mean, it's just... Okay, Milton. Okay, asked the same question as I asked the beginning. Who cares? That was my opening question. Who cares? All these people have these different beliefs. Who, all these people believe in Christ. I mean, not Jews and Islam, but all of Christianity. Who cares if they're Eucharist or Pope or what? Are, I, hope I've, I, I hope I've thrown some light on this question. Who cares? Um, who, what's the point of all of this for Milton? Who cares? What difference does it make? It makes a lot of difference because Milton gave his life to these things. Um, He started out, his grandfather was Catholic, his father Anglican, he was Anglican. He was headed to Orders, but he became caught up in these, these Reformation movements that were well underway by his time and began to identify with the Presbyterian cause because Milton believed to his bones that nobody should be able to impose God's will by political force on another. And that's what was going on. When Henry signed off on the, you know, when he made himself the head of the church, he required that everybody sign off on that. When Moore didn't sign off on it, you know what happened. He got executed. The, so all of, in my mind, all of this starts when Henry makes himself the head of the church because what he does is combine political power with the church at that moment, formally. He gives a formal power to Reformation powers. And, um, and the Catholics are um, exiled, their properties are confiscated, they're disenfranchised, they can't vote. The Puritans, because they resisted the Anglican mode, had to leave, that's why all the people went to the Netherlands and finally to America. So America is an outgrowth of this excessive use of power, this fusion of church and state. Um, Milton believed in the depths of his being that no man could force another man to believe something in conscience so he identified with the presbyterians because the presbyterians said they believed the same thing what we discover i mean those of you know i mean when the Pres- when the calvinists came here the presbyterians the congregationalists they required everybody to sign off in their doctrines if they didn't they were out when the presbyterians came into power in parliament they enforce belief on everybody else. Milton was horrified. He broke off from the Presbyterians. At that point he became a religion unto himself because he believed all established religions by their nature are corrupt. It's one of the fundamental things we've inherited from the Reformation. And we can see that play out today. I, th- I think I'm not claiming too much. Some, some you may disagree. I think it's fundamental to the American character to distrust anything established. The police by nature are corrupt. The church by nature is corrupt. Um, we we have a real suspicion of anything established because it can conceal corruptions. The great purge that's taking place in police forces over the last, I mean it's always ongoing, the great purge that's taking place in a church right now. Um, Milton wrote a number of tracks, political in nature, he um, um, <laughs> when he, he it was a, an arranged marriage, in his first marriage the, the woman t- to whom he was married was so disgusted by him that she left him, she was persuaded to come back and board um, children, she didn't live long, he, he married I think three times. Um, he wrote at one point a track on um, justifying divorce, which was a shock. You can imagine it would have been a shock to an England that had always been Catholic until recent times. And and he made the point that when Christ says, let no man sunder what God has joined, that's why in the Catholic Church the marriage is sacramental. God does it. We don't believe that's a man-made institution. Calvin changes that. Calvin believes that marriages are civil. He takes away all of the sacraments except the Eucharist, or, but even he changes the Eucharist. Milton believed that, that what, and this is, his, this is his reading of scripture again. He believed that Christ said what he did because he had the Pharisees in mind. That the real reason for marriage was compatibility, not procreation or the con- continuity of life. And it was on that basis that he wrote this tract in support of divorce. So the beginnings of the support for divorce are there. One of his most famous tracks is called I mean, Lots of people have heard of that. It's his defense of freedom of speech. It's actually an attack against the licensing practices at that time because people who had certain religious beliefs used their licensing laws to censor people who held different religious opi- opinions from their own. Mill believed it was really important for people to be able to say what was on their mind, particularly if they had differences in religion. That was his position, that it was important for people to debate freely, to not be censored. Um, He held that pretty firmly, except he had serious reservations about Catholics because he thought Catholics were superstitious and backwards, and so he was... A little bit wary of Catholics having that, but he really believed that it was important for the Reformation movement to go along, uh, to to develop. Um, he also wrote a tract um, um, in defense of regicide, and it was during that time, you know, that Charles was executed. Um, when I mean, when the um, Presbyterians defeated in, in the Second Civil War, um, he was convicted of treason and executed. Milton supported that. He makes a trap in defense of killing, executing a king. Um, so, very, very dedicated to the political movement, the, the, the hope that England could become a Christian nation, independent of the church, at a time when the religious sects were using political force to impose their belief on other sects. God's word was being forced on people politically and he objected that to his bones so increasingly over this time of being involved in all of these conflicts he becomes more and more disillusioned, more and more detached and finally withdraws and it's um, at that time that he begins to write Paradise Lost and it's uh, close, um, early on in these years that he begins to go blind and um, at some point in the writing of Paradise Lost he has to actually dictate it because he, um, he can't see anymore. And you'll see that in one of his invocations because it makes it clear that he, he can't see anymore. He's, he, he's, he's he's operating under the influence of a divine light. That light is showing. And you know the, the interesting um, link here is that our supposition is that Homer was blind um, and Milton's aware of that, that he's in some ways thinking of himself as picking up that same religious calling that Homer had um, himself in his own beliefs. Um, those are some important background things to keep in mind with Milton. I want to I pick up the epic tradition now and look at actually to get us going in the text, but before we do I've got um, I've got two things that are, are general a couple of things, actually several things. One is, I've said this before in our work together, um, I want to say it here because it's going to be particularly difficult here. Those of you who've been around for a while know that that I've I've thrown this out to you a number of times. Flannery O'Connor, who was a great writer of our time, contemporary, made the point in one of her essays that um, it was important for us to be able to identify with every character in a story or we wouldn't be reading well. Be reading, we would be reading selectively for our own egos. We want to identify with a good guy because we want to see ourselves as good. She was Catholic, she knew that there is in every one of it a secret self, we carry these sins, they're dark, they don't often show in the world, they do in confession, but she believed that there was a prophetic element to literature. You know, I've been saying that all along, that one of the values of literature is that it helps us to see things we don't want to see. Um, That's what prophecy's done for, that's what the old prophets did in the ancient world. They wanted people to look at themselves to see things they didn't want to see. Um, The great value of literature in my mind is that the greatness of great writers is that they do that. They help us to become aware of those things in ourselves that so often we don't want to look at. So that if if you take that seriously, and I do, and I'm encouraging you all to do it, just remember when you're reading Saint or uh, Paradise Lost, it means finding (laughs) finding Satan in ourselves. How's that for a way to start? You know I'm taking this seriously. I mean, you mean if we don't, when we did Othello, I I remember saying the same thing then that if we couldn't find Othello or Iago is such an evil figure in, in um, Shakespeare's Othello, we wouldn't be reading well. Um, I'm going to put that out here at, at the very beginning because Satan is a—he's the source of all sin. Can we find him in ourselves? Is there, can, can we read this and look at him? Because if we don't see him in ourselves in some way I'm not sure that we're reading well. Um, he's the cause of the fall. What M- makes that clear in the beginning? The founding word He's, what, the, what his work is about is the fall, the fall of man. And he says, who caused it? Satan. The problem behind all of our problems is Satan. Can we find him in ourselves? shakes me to say that, but I have to say it, because if we don't, I'm not sure that we're reading well here. Um, that's one. Two is the epic tradition. Now, Remember, those of you who have been with me for a while, remember the word epic comes from the Greek word epos. epos. epos the greek epos meaning a word a story a song usually a divine word because what an epic gives us that the modern novel does not unless you get to the root of Melville Hawthorne the rare um, what the epic gives us is a divine vision it it shows the gods interacting with man so the divine actively at work in our lives that's one of the Mark, one of the distinguishing marks of the epic. So, epos means a divine word. He's writing in the epic tradition, fully aware of it. For the longest time, Milton contemplated writing an epic on the chivalric romances, on Arthur and others. At some point, he he turned from that and turned his attention to the Bible. This is crucial for the Reformation. Now, stop and take in what I've just been saying for two weeks. The the fundamental belief of a Reformation thinker is scripture by itself is sufficient. We don't need the church in its hierarchy, priests. We have this immediate relationship with the Bible and God, and our reading of it. And by faith we go to that to make it, to see what we find, even if we find we're being contradicted all around us. What does Milton take as his subject? Genesis, the fall. The source of his work is Genesis, and he's rewriting it according to his vision of it, his reading of it. Nobody had ever, Dante didn't do that. If you look at the pagan epics, they didn't have scripture. So now we're in a Christian world and we've got something quintessentially Reformation. Milton is taking scripture, which is divinely revealed, and he's going to make clear that he's divinely inspired to write it. So everything about this work is reformation in spirit. Fundamentally. Is that clear? Now to put this in perspective, take a look at that sheet with the with the outline of the, you know, the epic tradition? This is the sheet. You should have it in that packet. Timeline for epics and scripture, or literature as prophecy, the tradition unfolding. We, sorry for those of you who've already done this. I want to do this just briefly. If you take take a look at the side that says timeline for epics and scripture, every single epic that we've read has as its theme a refounding. That's the central action of every epic. A people is suffering from some disorder. They can't get free of it. The epic hero is um, given a task. It's a divinely appointed something he bears goes directly to this problem. He's gonna have to bear something the others don't. Achilles steps out of the war. Odysseus is at sea in a metaphysical world for 10 years. Aeneas is in wandering for 10 years. Um, They have to go through this awful period of darkness to face themselves and learn to see things in a way that nobody else does. And they become the instruments of bringing something back into this world that makes it possible for people to turn loose of an old way of doing things and become renewed, reconstituted as a people. They take on a new identity. Yeah, we've done this before, so you all know. Well, the founding is at the center of every epic. Take a look at the the prophecy line. You're all on the same page. You all have a timeline for epics and scripture? Take a look at the prophecy line. Abraham's called out. Why? To found a new people. God's going to call out a people for a special mission in history. His end ultimately is for all the nations of the world. He says that to Abraham. The patriarchs are founded, the 12 tribes are established, and look at the timing. The Trojan War takes place somewhere around 13th century when is Moses called out somewhere around 13th century. Moses is going to bring his people to a new promised land. There's going to be a founding. You all see where this is going, right? Ultimately it's going to lead to Christ, this divine hero who's going to refound again. So at the center of all these works is this prophetic element, the God's working with men. To help reconstitute themselves, to deal with the disorder and say goodbye to it, is the beginning of something new. And then you look at the prophetic tradition, scripture, and particularly if you read Genesis and what and, and Exodus. Read Exodus; it reads like an epic. Um, a great founding is taking place. Um, so Milton was aware of all of this. He would have he would have um, felt it. So in my mind, when he when he when he decides to not take up the Arthurian romances and turns to genesis, to me it's so natural. Um, the other interesting thing to note about, two more interesting, one, one is that um, in taking up the founding, the, the fall, Milton lets the cat out of the bag on all the other epics, because if you read all the other epics, you see that in every one of these epics there's this fundamental problem at the heart of civilization. Civilization is, a, is it a pitch crisis. That's why I was speaking the way I did in the prayer this morning. There's this pitch crisis and a people is either going to destroy itself and fade or they're, they're going to be renewed and something, um, a, new f- a new spirit will inform them on what they do. That's behind all the epics. Um, Milton lets the cat out of the bag. What he's saying is what was behind all those ancient epics is the fall. So all the disorders that Holberg dealt with, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Virgil and the Aeneid, have their origins here. So he's, in one sense, he's, he's throwing a light on the entire epic tradition. In a sense, he's rewriting it, and he's bringing a spirit decidedly Protestant to it. And let me just throw out one question here to, to get us started, and we'll turn to Milton. Every every epic that we've read so far, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Iliad, you could even include the Divine Comedy if you make Dante a hero. I do, but you know he's a very different hero from the epic heroes. Those of you who've read him know that he passes out all the time. He keeps fainting whenever he's dealing with a hardship. And, and the ancient heroes, the pagan heroes never do such things. You know the pagan heroes are these great men who perform these extraordinary tasks. But at the center of every epic is this hero, this man who has this divinely appointed task, who has to carry these special burdens. It's true for Dante, even though he doesn't have the pagan heroism that Achilles or Odysseus or Aeneas has. Um, But every epic um, runs on this line of this hero. He holds everything together. Who's the epic hero of Paradise Lost? All All the epics we've read begin with a hero. This one begins with Satan. And you know in the beginning that, that he has all the qualities of a hero. He stands up, he courageously faces his downfall. Um, he, he talks about God as if he's this despotic figure. He rouses his men to come out, they build pandemonium and they're gonna go have this um, council. And the upshot of the council will, somebody needs to take on this quest, this heroic quest, to discover this new world to see if they can undo what God's done. So he has all the qualities of a hero. How are we to look at him? How are we to look at this figure? Okay, I want to start the poem. Um, you, you remember that all the epic poems started in Medius race. You all remember that, yes? In Medius race."
2: Huh?
0: In Medius In the midst of things, right? And remember, in the midst of things does not mean arithmetic middle, it's not a quantitative, the way we do it in the in the midst of things means we just discovered our sons on drugs, or we just learned that Aunt Maisie ran off with a guy and left her husband, and our family's just shocked. we have these moments in life where we think everything is under control, and suddenly, we learn something that shatters everything that we hold dear. All of us know those moments. It, it, they're in, the, in the tragedies, they're called the um, peripeteia, the turn. You know, when Oedipus discovers that he's the one who killed his mother, and you know, all these, there's a turn, a moment of a turn. Every epic begins in the midst of things. Suddenly something is revealed. We're in the middle of a problem, and now we have to begin to try to understand, to make sense of it, to to bring some light to it, some meaning to it, so it doesn't overwhelm. Here in Medius race is Satan wakes up in this burning lake. They've been exiled from heaven. They're here in the lake, and the plot is set in motion. Okay? I want to read from some lines, um, just finally to get us going, sorry for this long, but any questions about Milton or these epic conventions? What's been astonishing to me most of my life as as a student working with teachers, I can remember when I took a class on Milton at Berkeley, and, and I can even remember as a teacher when I asked students questions about Homer invoking the Muses, or Milton invoking the Holy Spirit, because that's what he does, and typically the teachers, teachers, academia, would look at these things as mere conventions. Homer didn't believe in that, Milton didn't believe in that. Milton's God, it's a fiction. I and mean, if you look at Milton's life and look at his poem, there's no, there's no way you can do that. But that's typically the way teachers present it, and that's more and more the way l- students look at it. If you ask a student today if, if Homer was serious in invoking, they would say that's just a mere, that's a mere epic convention. I hope you're following me, because I, I've been presenting them as epic conventions, that's what they are, that's, those are established <coughs> practices. But people reach a point where that's the way they look at it, that's all there is, they're epic conventions. Um, they don't believe that that actually took place, that... Homer would have generally prayed to a figure called Calliope that Milton was practicing an epic convention. I don't believe that for a second. I believe that Milton, as a a believer in Christ, fighting these battles that he fought, believe this to the core of his being. This is a man going back to Genesis and trying to account for all the problems in our world. That's the amazing things that he's doing here. Okay, can you turn to the beginning of the poem? Of man's first obedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. Notice, notice that the opening lines has um, a pun. Um, fruit, right? Because fruit means consequence. But it also means apple and he's referring to the. so already he's signaling there may be a double meaning to things going forward that, that there may be multiple levels of meaning in what we're doing but man's first disobedience and that fruit of the forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden to one greater man restore us and regain the blissful we'll see what's this about? man's fall man's restoration can you get more centrally Christian than that. Um, Sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb and of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of the What shepherd's he talking about? Moses. Moses. Okay. So, he's putting himself on a level with Moses. Who was inspired by God. Going over, um, go down, O Spirit that doth prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest. So he's asking that he inspire him as one of those who has a pure heart. Notice that line um, Yet in prose or rhyme, and chiefly thou, O Spirit that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart. Um, What does Christ make clear about temples? Remember he said um, to the, I can't remember the Sadducees or Pharisees, that he would destroy that temple in three days and rebuild it? And remember as a Protestant, Milton doesn't believe in the Eucharist. So that's not the major concern. The major concern for him is his purity of heart so the temple's been replaced, except remember what Christ did. He said, I will rebuild this temple, there's going to be a new one, and at the center of it for Christ was the Eucharist, unless you eat of this, but so at the center of the Catholic tradition, I mean the historic tradition forever until modern times, was the Eucharist, the offering of himself um, at the center of a temple. So it wasn't just the purity of heart, that is, it wasn't just an individual's faith there was something more. But for Milton it's, that does prefer before all temples the upright heart. So already, in a very veiled way, we have something that's um, noticeably Reformation. Um, And with mighty wings outspread dove-like, sat us brooding on the vast abyss and made us it pregnant. What in me is dark illumine? What is low, raise and support that to the height of this great argument? I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to man. Any response to that line? And justify justify the ways of God to men. No.
2: Well, the word "justify" is a strange word for me. There, I take a different meaning from it than. Go the word
0: ahead. Did. Go ahead. What? Go ahead. How do you read it, Sue?
2: Well, if I read it at face value, when I first read it, I thought, well, that's presumptive. Um, but I don't know that justify wasn't used in terms of explain, help, understand. So I, I don't know that. But, but I How is
0: that know. different from the first way when you said it was presumptuous? How well, was I th- no, I
2: don't, I don't mean it's not presumptuous, but in the same way that, that you seek to do what's right so that you through you... God can work, that's not as bad to me, as negative to me as as saying, I'll justify it for you. I mean yeah. there's a there's a right. conduit idea that could be in here, or there's a I got the keys to the kingdom idea without really knowing that. It's
1: it guy. sounds more to me like he's trying to explain the mind of God to us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, the and question. I do
1: find it. very I mean, I, when I read it
2: first, well, that's presumptuous. But he's.
0: But you don't feel I mean, that way also, now, and I'm wondering well, why. No, no,
2: no, no, no. I didn't say didn't feel. Oh, sorry. Ever. What I'm saying is, there's another way that it can be read. I didn't read it that way originally, but if I try to give him the benefit of the doubt, I can say, "You would sometimes pray. I don't know how you're going to do this, but use me."
0: That's a stretch on the word justify there, it seems to be. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I don't know how that might have been used in the past. But
2: there's a little bit of what Dante did. Let's wait to... I know, yeah, yeah, that's why I didn't...
0: I think, I mean, my reading of this, the conventional reading, non-Christian Christian, Christian, doesn't matter. I mean, the way most people read this, without those who have no faith, is that he's really taking on himself the role of a prophet, and claiming here, that he's
2: already claimed Moses. Yes, They're not afraid of his arrogance.
0: Right, right. Um, here, claiming to justify the ways—I mean, the way that I thought you were reading it first in the Don. On the surface, it does seem presumptuous. I mean, I, I'm going to read—not tonight. I mean, not today because we've got we don't have much time left. But I'll read a passage from Scripture. But at this point, he's really claiming to be speaking prophetically, and one of his aims will be. To, just, to, to show the ways of God to men so that they can better understand what God's doing. And the question to keep here, is that presumptuous or not? I, I don't think it was to Milton. I mean, he believed. No,
2: I, I, don't, I guess
0: that's what I'm saying. I, I believe in his heart. He believed that. Um, um, and then he says, "What caused, what caused all of this Satan? And he describes Satan. Now, going over to about line 55 or so, He with his horrid crew lay vanquished, rolling in the fiery gulf, confounded, though immortal, but his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought both of lost happiness and lasting pain torments him. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witness huge affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate at once as far as angels can he views." So we, we, this, this is a really important line because we shift from Milton's view, his objective presentation of things, we're in Satan's consciousness. And now we're in the drama. So the opening invocation, there's that epic convention, the opening is presented, we know what the epic's about, there's a problem, he's going to look at the cause of it, and he presents us with Satan and we're on our way. And one of the questions we're going to be faced with now is, epic hero, how do, we, how do we look at what Milton's doing with Satan? Which to me is one of the, the most in, important questions, in, the, in my mind, in the modern world. I'm just going to quote a couple of things and I, I want to leave this quick because our time is up. Go over to Satan sees Beelzebub the two look at each other, they're horrified but what they see, they recognize the nobility they once had with each other, go to about line 250. 2.45, 2.50, Satan looks at it, at the devastation, the darkness, the, the grime, the horror of what he's, what now he's a part of and he says, farewell happy fields where joy forever dwells, hail oars, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I still be the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater, here at least we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built here, for his envy will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. He's saying the world is what we make it. Right? The mind is its own place and in itself can make whatever the mind makes it, it is. There is no objective reality. The world is what you make of it from your own mind. That is so I mean, I hope you that how absolutely modern that Mm -hmm. is. Anyway, I want, to, I want to stop here. A couple of questions. There's a number of passages worth looking at. Earlier, Satan looks back at the devastation of the lake and the fire of it and, and the fall and all of, all of its effects. And, and Milton describes him as becoming teary. He tears up. He has this line where he says, um, the mind is its own place and the mind is its own place in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven, that is we can make it what we want. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Um, he constantly makes claims about God. He earlier says he, he sees the fall in terms of what he calls injured merit. That's um, line 98 from sense of injured merit. Um, does God ever injure merit? Satan is describing his fall in terms of, in, that he didn't deserve this. Um, he, he weeps. Um, he, he, um, he's going to give, we're, Milton's going to give us a catalog of the demons on, on line about three, 385. And you know that there are 12 demons. Every one of these demons um, is identified with one of the gods of the peoples Surrounding the Israelites when they came into the Promised Land, and some of them they actually began to worship themselves. So every one of these demons is one of those gods. So Milton is saying that the source of all of those false gods are is these demons. That's one. But take a look too, also on on page sorry on uh, line 740, when he asks that pandemonium be built and they. They build this great hall, and then the demons go in there for the council. That council will be, Book Two, right? On 740, um, whom the supreme king exalted to such power and gave to rule each in his hierarchy, the orders bright. Nor was his name unheard or unadored in ancient Greece, and in sonian land men called him Mulciber, How he fell from heaven, they fabled. Thrown by angry Jove sheer over the crystal battlements, from morn to noon he fell, from noon to dewy eve a summer's day. Do you do you know who that is? Don't look at the notes. Who fell from heaven became crippled in the ancient Greek world? Who was the maker of things in the ancient Greek world? Do you remember? Hephaestus. Good for you. Hephaestus. Hephaestus was the god of crap. Think about this. Hephaestus made Achilles shield. And it was that shield, remember, that warded it off, I mean, that made him almost invulnerable because it was divinely made. Milton is saying all of those ancient gods were actually demons. So here he's taking that whole Homeric Virgilian world and turning it on its head and saying all evil. Not just the gods of the Isra- or the people who surrounded the Israelites, but the whole Greek pantheon has, has its source in these fallen devils. Now think about that what that does for Zeus, Hera, Athena, Aphrodite, Athena who's the goddess of wisdom, has lost that. I mean so what in the ancient world was looked at as a natural good from this perspective. What, Milton is saying, if you take off the wraps, what you're seeing is that it was all inherently evil. So this whole epic tradition is getting turned on its head. Now, the question that I want to ask here, what do you make of Satan? I know this. we've only got a few minutes, but I want to... What do you make of Satan? Um, um, oh, here's another line here, sorry. Take a look at 640. He's addressing all the demons, remember they, they began to emerge from the lake and he, he's their leader. So he's, he's mobilizing his armies, um, they're, they're going to have this council whether they, to attack heaven again and carry on this battle or what they're going to do. He says about line 635, but he who reigns monarch in heaven Till then, as one secure sat on his throne, upheld by old repute, consent, or custom in his regal state, put forth its full, but still his strength concealed, which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall. Somebody paraphrase, what's he saying there? But still his strength concealed, which tempted our attempt and wrought our fall. Henceforth, his might we know and know. Who's to blame for what happened? God. God. Yeah, he tempted them. It's his fault. So we see Satan speaking to his men, talking about injured merit. He seems to cry. He cries for a moment. He says farewell in what seems a very noble speech. He has all these very noble speeches. Um, how well does he see himself? Um, how do we look at him? Um, how do you, how, how are you guys reading Satan in this first chapter?
1: Like most of us, we just uh, blame outside forces for all our
0: problems. Say it again, no, all, all outside, outside, sorry?
1: All our outside problems are a result of something, somebody, else, somebody, else, somebody yeah. else's fault that I'm where I am.
0: Yeah. How well does he know himself? Hmm? Not very. Yeah, not, I mean he's making all these the, one of the interesting things about Satan he is so capable of using this heroic language this rhetoric, very powerful speaker he's the kind of speaker who would persuade because he's so articulate the language is so noble but when you look at what he's saying what's underneath it's full of problems what about his crying I, I want to tackle that for a minute because I've got this is going to go to the crux of something. What about his crying? What's your response to that? I really want to hear from you guys. When you came across that passage where Milton describes him as dropping tears, any response?
2: Kind of humanizes him.
0: Go on. Flush that out, can you?
1: Regretting what his actions? <coughs> Sorry. His
2: actions of maybe trying to take over.
0: I'm going to read a passage where he actually speaks in exactly those terms later, okay. but not, but let me ask a much harder question. This is going to go to a metaphysics, and I I know none of you have probably had courses in metaphysics, but. Um, Imagine the fall taking place. We're gonna learn from God in book three that when God, God said, the angels chose to fall, no redemption for them. Man was tricked, right? So I will show them mercy. But at that point he's saying that the angels fell by their choice. That is they turned completely away from him. Can you imagine a demon who's all evil Completely evil now. And I'm saying this as seriously as I can. Can you imagine a demon crying? Let me put it differently, because Serfani's, I mean, her word to me was really well chosen. I'm gonna assume for a moment, just for the sake of argument, that all of us know that as humans, we're divided. We all live in a state of division, all of us do. We wanna be good that there are, Paul says as much, we wanna be good there's something wrong in us. When when some unexpected good comes to us, we cry in joy. Yeah, we don't expect it. We don't feel we're deserving of it. Tears come to our eyes. When we're sad at doing something, we regret having done, we cry. So we cry in joy, we cry in sorrow. Can a demon who's turned from God, whose whole will is not divided, that is, is, because it's it's a condition of our humanity to be divided. We're in a fall. So we live with divisions in us. Is it possible to imagine a demon crying? Okay, I'm going to
2: tackle this. Sorry? I said I'll tackle it, but I'm not confident of this. Partly we also cry in frustration. And that's what I saw in Satan. You can cry like a kid can cry. But we're all we all have that in us. We want something so badly. And we think we deserve it. And it's not fair, and the world's wrong. And under those circumstances, you can cry, but they're a different kind of tears. It's a it's a different motivation. It's not the
1: it's, it's, it's
2: not the okay. It's not the self reflection that you're saying in the person who is divided. It is purely that they think they deserve something. And they're mad, and they're frustrated, and it can come out as tears. But it's a different—it's because they're so sure they deserve it, and something's gotten in their way.
1: I think it's jealousy and envy. Yeah. And I think I think God is there. People and can do that. I, if that's I what deserve to being. be there.
0: Wait, one of you at a time, sir. Go, go ahead. no go. <laughs> ahead. Which
1: whichever oh, one. Ahead. of It's jealousy and envy. Uh, you know, he's in position I should be in.
0: God? You mean he's saying that of God? God's in that position that I should yeah, be?
1: Yeah, I'm equal to God or just as good as God. And I deserve to be in that position.
2: Well, it's only momentary because he's so obstinate that I don't. If those tears are tears because he feels bad about something that doesn't stay with him that long, mostly he's. I, I agree, he's so frustrated that he can't have what he wants, but he thinks he needs. Yeah,
0: Uh, take a look at that passage again. Sue, and I'm saying this particularly to you, but um, is it frustration? I mean, when he he looks back, in in fact, let me even take that up for a minute. Um, It's still a question in my mind whether something like frustration doesn't come from a divided soul. We know that as humans. So allow what Sue's saying for a second. Um, We're going to stop in a minute. it's still, in my mind, it's, a, it's still an expression, or at least it raises a question for me, of whether or not it doesn't come out of a divided soul still. We long for a perfection, and, and in frustration, because that longing isn't answered. It's harder for me to see tears of frustration, but I, even allowing it for a second, let's say, it still is an expression of a divided soul. We long for something we can't have, um, um, are those the tears here? The, the, wait, wait, just the um, there was a choice on the part of Satan to reject everything good. When you're frustrated, it's because there's still something in you that longs for good. You, you know, you want this, or you're frustrated because you haven't gotten it, or you didn't do it, or you couldn't, whatever the, whatever the discrepancy in there. If you're going disc- to say that tears might be appropriate, then. The question that I'm really asking here is: We're dealing with a demonic soul. This is Satan. Um, let me even put it differently, because it, the serious question that I'm here is: Does Milton humanize him? I happen to think he does. But the larger question for me is why. I mean, as we stay with this creature, he's, this is Satan. But let me let me approach it differently. If you've read Othello, you know that Iago. I think, in all my reading, Iago's the most evil man I've ever encountered in literature. He, he, I've never met a creature. He, he, he sets out to destroy. That's all he wants. It's a it's an, God. I am that am. Everything about God is being, creative. Iago is the antithesis of that. He wants to take being out. He wants to destroy. It. So he's the nullifier, the anti being creature. He wants to take being away So one way of looking at evil is that, imagine imagine Iago coming across a beautiful woman, Desdemona. Will his feelings for her be awe or wonder, or will he instinctively want to hurt her? When Satan comes to Eden, he's going to look at Eden in wonder, in wonder. Can a demon whose whose whole being has turned from good ever approach good? In the divided condition in which we do, because we live with that day to day. So the question that I'm raising here is Milton's treatment of Satan. Lots of critics, Blake included, Blake's gonna, I'm gonna read the passages, Blake Shelley, said Milton was of the devil's crew without knowing it. What they meant by that is there there's this, it's not sympathetic. But the way that he presents <coughs> Satan, shows these heroic qualities, and in this case he shows him tearing up, that reminds us of qualities that are human. If they're there, why did he do it? Was this a mistake? Was he doing it for some other reason? Did he want, to, did he want us to somehow identify him, with him? That You know, there are major questions to ask here at the outset. Let me just leave a couple minutes for your response and then we've got to stop because it's time. But. Any any response to any of that? He's working off an epic convention, the hero, and and it's going to affect what we do. I mean, we're going to have to ask at some point, what, if you put Adam and Eve next to Satan, what what's our response to them? And finally, Christ, when Satan and Christ go to war with each other. You know, um, how do we look at these other figures? Or not? Sorry, not Christ, the Son. Because Christ hasn't come yet. You'll be doing battle with the Son in heaven. Um,
2: Why would Milton want us to empathize
0: with Satan? That's a question I'm asking. Oh,
2: okay. Um, unless he did have the idea that we need to identify
0: I'd hate doing this, but looking ahead, I'm going to be giving. I don't like doing it, but the the whole demonic ep- enterprise is going to come to nothing. You know, towards the middle of the book, all the demons are going to be reduced almost to ashes. And they're going to be these hideous creatures. So all, everything that's heroic right now is going to come to nothing. I shouldn't say that, but it, that's what's going to happen. But it it goes to this question: Why did he, why did it's going to be it's going to be a major question for us as we go through? Why did What is Milton doing with his representation, his treatment of Satan?
2: Is understandable. I mean there's there's a part of us that is that has to fight against that. And if we can't recognize that as familiar and in some ways enticing, mm-hmm. we have absolutely no power because we dismiss it. We don't see it, but it's not real.
1: Yeah. And so to me, when I said I can see him crying,
2: he's not the reasons we would cry I, I don't I mean yes we can cry in frustration and we have different motivations mm-hmm. but to me Satan cries out of frustration but it makes him look like he's crying from the motivation we might and and without that to me the rest of the story is highly improbable and it makes evil not to
0: flesh that part out, improbable why just so we're clear in that because I thought you were closer to you said in Well, okay,
2: I, I, uh, uh, Improbable in that Eve would not have been deceived by someone who was not enticing.
0: Oh, although it's in a, the form of a serpent then. So. As,
2: okay, but, but that evil is in whatever Still part. talks
0: a familiar voice. And, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And there's yeah. an able to use human divided emotions. To to sway and we still fight against that. And if there isn't anything believable or enticing or attractive, but if there isn't anything there to pull you that direction, then I yeah, mean, to use your words, you are just depraved. I mean, it's
0: one one of the things I'd like to. I, I want to end on this because I'm going to try to keep to time. But one of the things I'd like every to encourage everybody to keep in your minds as you're reading. Um, since the renaissance with those little cherub figures, you know, we look at angels as if they're these little cute, you know, that would would put mothers in a place of saying, oh, my baby, oh, my darling, you know, this little, don't forget that angels are these extraordinary figures that are supposed to um, evoke awe at the beauty and magnitude and power. Think of um, Michael or Gabriel or, you know, So, it's really important, I think, to keep a a sense of things that we've lost, that Milton had at that time, that there's this extraordinary magnitude and power and strength to angels. So, everything he shows about Satan conveys that, that this is extraordinary figure. Um, And yet, somehow, they're related to us because, like us, they're made in God's image in this sense. Angels and humans are like God in having intellects and wills. We have intellects and wills. Flowers don't. Animals don't. Angels do. In- angels are all intellect and wills. They, um, remember that example I gave you. If um, all of us came in, if there's a needle here in this table, and everybody came into this room and put their minds on that needle, how many how many minds would what would happen to that needle? Would it get more and more crowded or not? If a hundred people came into the room, or a thousand, and they all put their minds on that needle, the point of that needle, would the point of that needle get any more crowded? Physically, it's not getting crowded because what we're talking about is immaterial beings, they don't have bodies. So you can have, that's that question in the middle, how many angels are the, the head of a needle? It was a trick question to see if people can make the distinction between a physical and a metaphysical world, right? Because angels don't have body, they don't occupy space, they move from here to here. They're there already. They're in a different dimension. So they have this extraordinary amplitude and power, but they're different from us. But they're the same in having intellects they see and they will. So the fallen angels chose to revolt. They turned from God. In that instant, and St. Thomas says, and I believe him, that instant was instant. It was an instant after the creation. It had to be. It was instantaneous. They turned from him. Their wills were Completely turned. That's what that means. Milton is showing Satan with all this power um, and yet in some ways he humanizes him. Why? I mean, I'm going to just keep that question out for a while. It's important to remember that there should be something awesome and yet um, it's only because there was some not familiarity, but um, affinity between the angels and humans that the angels could have tempted Adam or Eve at all, right? So, um, what's Milton doing? Um, How do we look at Satan? Um, It's just a question I want everybody to keep in mind as we go through this because in some ways he's he's the substitute figure for the epic hero. He's going to occupy our minds for the next four or five books. Um, and in that sense, he's taking the place of Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. He has all the characteristics, and yet everything about him is to destroy, um, to undo. Um, how do we look at him? Okay, let's just... Okay, we're on our way. Um, we'll do the next two books. I'm, I'm going to try to cover two books in each one of our classes, so keep reading. You know, you should be t- book two, three, four, five, somewhere in there. Keep, moving. keep reading ahead.